Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 4 of Total Party Podcast. With me today I've got our DMs and regulars, Jack, Cat Herder, Thea. Morning. Matt, Gollum, Light. Morning guys, also that's unkind. And Taylor, Steel Tits Taylor. Hello. So how are we all this morning? Mostly tired. I'm currently in the process of trying to work out how to level up my Pathfinder character from level 2 to 3. So not like lots of stuff going on, but obviously because it's Pathfinder, it's a long-winded nightmare. Is that absolutely fair, Matt? Or are you trying to work around the system with a third-party feat to get something for your animal companion? That's not true. I, I knew the feat I wanted, which was I wanted... See, I've not, I've not worked around, actually, so fuck you. What I've done was I went, okay, what feats are cool? I want the pet, because I'm enjoying the pet hunter dynamic so much. And Torm is like this, he's not like a priest of Bohm, but he's like nature's ally and like, he like prays to Bohm, the moon and stuff. I was like, okay, how can I find that to work it? And I was looking at feats for animal companions and hunters and stuff. And one of them is you can give your hunter a one point evolution for their pet. I was like, oh, that's cool. What are the one point evolutions? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Ah, there's this one. Ah, that's cool. That gives it like a spirit. Bowman, like nature and spirit magic. That's all really cool. Brilliant. So to contextualize this, you are using a feat for your hunter to get a summoner power. The summoner power you're choosing is one that gives you some spiritualist power. And the spiritualist power that you're choosing is one that gives you some shaman spirits. No, 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 not quite. I'm doing a different feat to get me a shaman spirit. Jesus Christ. This Pathfinder game, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. Matt misrepresents it because he has to dive really deep and find the absolute perfect thing every level. And when there are several hundred feats, that's actually going to take a long time <laughs> rather than just, you know, I'll pick one that looks cool. No, Matt is like, I must find the perfect feat. There is one feat. There can be only one feat. I must find it. <laughs> Level 3 is particularly challenging for my hunter because I have to pick a feat for my hunter, then I have to pick a feat for my pet, and then I also have to pick a feat for like a free teamwork feat that I get every three levels. So, yeah, don't get me wrong. I think that there's a lot of like fucking about in Pathfinder, but I'm not having a bad time doing it. <laughs> I operate very differently in Pathfinder to you, and I think ultimately I'm going to end up with a much worse character, but I'm just like, oh, that's, that, that feat's got a cool name. I'll have that. And then later I'll see what it does. <laughs> As Gygax intended. Right do That's the right yeah. way to do it. So we're going to start off this morning talking about multiclassing. I am afraid of multiclassing and really <laughs> like the level 20 abilities. So I actually have... I'm going to be more a listener here and have, be having people sell me on it. Because like I said, I just love the level 20 abilities. And it scares me. So who wants to kick off with some discussion about multiclassing. So I'm going to step in first of all, Chris, and say that the reason that I'm fine with multiclassing and I think it's cool and I don't worry about it is that I don't actually see any campaign or character getting to level 20. First of all, it takes so long. Secondly, Jack does like to murder us. And finally, (laughs) and finally, I just, looking at the way the spells in the game works at level 20, I don't like the idea of an adventure at that level in that once your players are basically gods... And your clerics can actually just ask actual gods to just, you know, give them a leg up here and there. I'm not sure how much fun that would be. So, because I don't think the game will get there, and I'm not worried about it when it does, I think that, like, just multi-class now. Just do it. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, Matt and I on two sides of the fence. Me with hopes and dreams, and Matt with a nihilistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's a clear split in how you think about it, but you you do give up a lot early on if you multi-class really early and you're a caster in any way, shape, or form because you just immediately lose access to like level three or level four spells by taking that one or two dip. But the synergy you get between some classes, like Paladin and Sorcerer, is just bonkers. Paladin Warlock as well. Like I think yeah. Warlock is maybe the best one for multi-classing uh, because of all the stuff you get so early with that class. Yeah, definitely. Like. I, th- I love pack magic slots. I, I just love the idea that obviously they're for spells, but they're completely separate from everything else, no matter what else you have. You've just got this little separate pool that you can occasionally do cool stuff with. And you can cast your other classes' spells with those slots. Or smite. Or smite. Or smite. Yeah, like that. Smite recharging on a short rest is bonkers and great. Yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. I, mean, I think, like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about their level 10 warlock. I've only heard people talk about, like, their level 3 fighter, 7 warlock, or, you know, you know what I mean? Or, like, yeah. 5 sorcerer, 3 warlock. Mm. I've never ever heard someone go, you know what I made? I made this really high level warlock. And I was just like, don't get it. I think barbarian's a good one for a dip as well. Because when I was playing, Gurney, the old fighter, and I was looking at resetting him. A two-point barbarian dip is actually pretty good. I mean, less less good if you're a full plate fighter. Unarmored defense kind of makes up for not wearing some amount of armor. And raging is just so good. Mm. Uh, It essentially doubles your health. Because, particularly at low levels, we've come across very little that wasn't bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing damage. We've had about or so of frost damage... A bit of acid damage, but largely raging doubles your health, which is excellent. Yeah, and if you go bear totem, uh, those other kinds of damage don't even matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan of barbarian dips, mm. and well, just barbarians. Yeah, I think I mean fighter barbarian synergy is huge. Like, I think the most famous barbarian player character is Grog from Critical Role at the moment. And I'm pretty sure he's a barbarian fighter. Just because you get, you get to choose one of the fighting weapon styles, which is huge. Like whether you dual wield or you have a great weapon, like that's already a huge benefit. And second wind. Mm. And the level two action surge can't be underrated when you're raging. So you, you know, you're raging, you get two attacks a turn because you're level five barbarian and you've action surge. So that's four attacks relentlessly with great weapon fighting as a feat or something like that. And you just sit there and go, I think I kill you. Probably. Something like that. And especially if you're then a half-orc rolling on advantage with oh, brutal God. critical. Dear Lord. Yeah, and then maybe you're a champion. And maybe you crit on the 19 and the 20 as well. And it's Oh, just, yeah. Like, oh, God. Like, it's absolutely brutal. But then the flip side of that is the character is so weak versus spells. Because mm. you don't have any saving throws in wisdom or charisma. And you, you, know, you probably don't have a high wisdom or charisma. Maybe you have a reasonable one. <laughs> Do you think if you're if you're a druid and you're a barbarian multiclass and you shapeshift into a bear, you can rage? I think so. I don't see why not. There's literally no reason why you couldn't yeah, do that. You definitely can. I was thinking about doing a character just like that when I was sort of just thinking about what other characters I would make in the future. Not saying I'm going to. He definitely just, is. Just hypothetically. Absolute liar. <laughs> if you get Gesh killed so you can take the barbarian slot, I'll be very unhappy. <laughs> Hey, we had to re- we had to retire my barbarian because we changed the party, and I loved that character. It is sad that the one yeah. character that you really, really gelled with is one that did have to be taken out. He was a half orc with great weapon fighting, and it was just. I think the first time you did it with relentless attack, I'm like, okay, yep, yeah, you're minus five to hit. Yeah, yeah, fine. And you rolled like an eighteen and a sixteen. I'm like, okay, that will hit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, die. That was on a, that was on the dragon as well, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, Hyde, Hyde was cool. Hyde was very cool. Mm. Especially once he got flying boots. Oh <laughs> Off the cold, dead corpse of his friend. I mean, it was a very warm corpse at that point. <laughs> Just bringing it back to multicasting, I think that's something I always do. I'm guilty of whenever I design a character I want to play, like when I actually do get around to playing. I always look for, what happens if I multicast? 
what's the super cool benefit? I struggle. Mm. I always think, ah, but I could just have two levels of fighter and be a fighter rogue with action surge and just be like, yeah. Yeah, the, fi- yeah. the fighter dip is so strong because it basically gives you like a healing potion and an extra action. And that's really quite strong yeah. in the form of second wind and action surge. Um, also, if you're playing a class that isn't normally martial, it gets you all the proficiencies at level 1 and a little bit of extra HP, which can make all the difference. So the way you're approaching it, Jack, is mainly from a rules one, but I think like another real benefit of multiclassing is, especially in 5e, it lets you make characters that otherwise you just can't make. The core classes and just following them through their logical progression doesn't always end up with exactly what you want, and I think multiclassing is really, really good for filling that gap. Even aside from like the mechanical benefits, going back to my, I think my very first character with you, Jack, Trixie, who was a Oath of Ancients paladin, uh, until he realised he'd let his friend die, and he's like, ah, oh, well, I'm a bit shit, I could use some more power, so we went into the forest and made a pact and became a warlock as well. That was strong, but at the time I didn't really know how strong that was going to be because I hadn't played in a lot of 5e games. But I was mainly doing that just for the thematic reasons because I really like the fact I was like a fey mm. paladin, fey warlock, just super fey because I really like that stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I, I think the rules that exist to allow you to get there thematically as well as like um, min-max style of stuff. I mean, Matt, Matt and myself both love to min-max and to find like, oh, what's, yeah. the, what's the best absolute... like. I can't make a character if a character doesn't have an action, a bonus action, and a reaction. I feel like if he doesn't have access to all those, those three things, I'm a bit sad. I miss out on the economy. Yeah. But equally, it has to make sense thematically for the character. There has to be a reason. So my like, my current player character is a Valabard, and he's level 7 now. And so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, he's staying as a Bard for now because I want that level 10 magical secrets. I need it. But the magical secrets for a Bard is huge thematically for being able to choose what's, what's like what makes sense for that bard that he couldn't normally have. So I think he's going to take, because he uses his bow continuously as a sharpshooter, he's going to take Swift Quiver, because it just like makes sense thematically that he'd have that. Uh, what does that one do? I am not aware of that spell. Uh, it's level 4 ranger spell that basically makes your you attack twice per attack action. No, 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 it's better than that. It's better than that. You get to make two bow shots as a bonus action. Oh, that's it. So you, so what happens is if Valid Bard takes the attack action as an action, and then following turns, it bonus action twice, he gets four attacks a turn. Wow. Which as a bard is kind of cool. pretty hot. Yeah. And then the other stuff with bard is gives you like little tricks. But then after that point, I'm like, well, I don't really need much more from being a bard. I've got level five spells. I've got, you know, I've got max charisma so I can give out all the inspiration I want to give out. Then he'll dip fighter because he'll be like, well, I really need to focus on my martial training. So I want him to have like the archery weapon style, you know, it's like, yep, I'm really good at shooting things because I've just got sharpshooter. And you can't get that as bard. Like you can't even get it as a feat of any kind to give back a little kind of like better archery shindig so yeah, that's kind of why I see, how i see it so the character you're making is a bard some would describe him as bard the bowman <laughs> oh god he's a half elf <laughs> <laughs> you made bard yes. the bowman yes taylor very good very good i'm gonna have to kill him off now if you don't find some arrows of dragon slaying your DM is, like, negligent. Yeah. Like, full-on negligent. Oh, man. <laughs> if only I was as good as killing my player characters off as I was as a DM at killing player characters off. Oh, no. It's, it's done now. Character's done. It's it. He can't, can't get any higher. Oh, dear. So, thus far, we've talked a lot about dips, uh, as opposed to, like, I don't know what you call it, like, full multi-classing, I guess? Where you go, like, maybe, like, 10-10 or roughly there is your, like idea of a build because everyone like if you're building a character like this you've obviously got a plan all the way up through level 20 even though you know you're never going to get there my plans for dax i was thinking about it recently so 
for my next point, my next level, I'm going to, have to go into fighter to get a some sort of fighter benefit. Because now that I've got a couple of spell slots I can smite things with, I just want more options with them. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, what am I going to do after that? Because like, then I can get an ASI at level 8. That's cool from fighter. Then level 9, I can get another attack from fighter. That's pretty cool. Probably do that. What do I do then? And I thought, it's probably just going to come down to where Dax is going at that point. Because at that point, he's going to have three attacks a turn. He's going to have good stats. He's going to be able to smite things, like turn himself invisible, use some Battlemaster maneuvers, or some samurai damage resistance. And he'll have like a good amount of AC. I thought, what do I do then? And I thought, well, he's got all this stuff in his backstory. So... I could multi-class into like a bit of a religious turn for it. Maybe he goes. Maybe the plot means he goes back to Lurian and helps out at the Church of Avavine, and he gets a cleric level. I was like, that's pretty cool. Maybe you could get a cleric level. How would that help? Would that be interesting? I thought, oh, what kind of cleric could he be? Hmm, nice. And I think that's what you, what you want your players to do with multi-classing is like my as a DM, I would be like so happy if there were were some clerics in the story for a bit and one of the characters got on so well with them they were like they said yeah i'd like to multi-class into cleric next level please and i'd say to them cool that's awesome i mean everyone else is about to get like fourth level spells so you're going to be a bit behind the curve and if they said oh then i don't really want to do it i'd find a way to incentivize it because i don't want my players to lose out for doing cool roleplay stuff and i think multi-classing in a role-playing way is like the coolest thing you can do Hmm. imagine like how happy you would be if your character uh, and I know some characters like this wouldn't work for like Gesh is very devout so it's unlikely but if your character discovered like a big baddie and they could then take a warlock like that would just be so cool I would be so over the moon if that happened to my character I think especially as we don't play Adventure League so we can pretty we can be loose with the rules to a certain extent I think as a DM how I would approach that is like, first I'd look at feats and I'd be like is there a feat you can take like for example let's say Dax discovers this god from working with a cleric he really gets on with and likes right why wouldn't I just give him the magic initiate feat and you choose cleric, and you get to choose like two cantrips and one level one spell that he learns from the cleric list. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I, I agree with you massively. Like, if if a player's like, "Oh, I'll just take a level dip in cleric," it's like, "Yeah, sweet, cool, that makes sense." But even in the world, like, there are ways of worshiping the gods. Like, you can be a paladin and take an oath to one. Maybe you've even got a pact with one rather than like an actual like divine connection. There are ways you can realize that level of, of devotion and faith without the multi-class dip. Yeah, I think it gives you something. Though, like, having Cleric 1 written on your sheet, I think a lot of players would like that. But I think you are essentially just right. Things I'm always looking for ways as a DM to reward my players. Just in terms of, like, I just want my players to do, like, really cool, really creative, inventive stuff. We'll get onto it when we talk about my game in a little bit. But my players did something this session that I'd essentially set up for them to be able to screw up. And I was like, please don't, guys, because I think you guys are the best, and I love you, and I want you to have a nice time, and I know you're smart, and I know you can do cool things. And then they botched it, and it was like, that's fine. And when I see there being chances for them to do great things or to botch, I sort of mentally configure a fork. If they do it great, this is what happens. And if they do it less well, this is what happens. And then I just like wait to see if it's going to happen. And when it does, I'm like, oh. Mm. If one of my players, I mean, Taylor, try not to abuse this. Like, I can see Taylor's character after this having like four levels of multi-classes. And like, like he's like, <laughs> currently he's a rogue warrior, a rogue fighter. And like in 10 weeks time, he'll be like rogue three, fighter two, cleric one, sorcerer one, warlock one, barbarian one, blah one because he's like, yeah, I keep doing all these cool roleplay things and Matt keeps rewarding me with like sick magic items and story moments. But yeah, I've sort of rambled a bit, as is my want, but 
I think you can see what I mean. I want my players to like seek out multi-class opportunities, I think. I, I'm not doing a multi-class dip, but I am already sort of doing that in your game. Because I was just going to go champion for my fighter archetype because I fight with two weapons and the Critfisher build is just strong. But after we've played for like 10 weeks and been alongside a huge burning fire sorcerer that whole time who actually does loads of cool shit, I've just had my character be like, huh, magic seems really powerful. Maybe I'll Eldritch Knight instead. And now I'm getting Nova to actually teach Nick around some magic. So, like, we're already sort of doing that. But again, it's an example of how you don't always need to multi-class to do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I'm super happy with that. Like, because you're already multi-classing, it means you can just sort of step into it. And I think the idea of your character... I mean, it's something I meant to mention on uh, Thursday when we played, but I totally forgot. That Nick around Taylor's character, had the issue in the last fight that they were in difficult terrain and he couldn't close with the enemy. And all he has as ranged weapons are throwing knives. When Taylor's character finally did get to the enemy, it knocked him unconscious. So it wasn't it wasn't a great session for Nicaran. No. And Taylor was lamenting at the end of the session. He's like, wow, I really... Why don't I have a bow? This is ludicrous. I need a bow. Like, I need to learn some lessons and get a bow. And I forgot to say, slash didn't think at the time, you're about to learn Firebolt. Yeah, so you're actually pretty close to just... Thing is, my firebolt's never going to hit because my int is really low. Like Eldritch Knight is actually a terrible choice for me, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> well, you'll still get your proficiency. I think I need to write some like variant Eldritch Knight rules based around like wisdom and charisma. Yeah, that would be nice. Like, <laughs> being able to use any. Like, oh my god, if I could use charisma, my charisma's so high. You just do that, so but you tweak high. it because obviously, like Eldritch Knight is based around what invocation and abjuration scores. Like I know Arcane Trickster is like illusion and another one in a similar way. You just do something like that where you just choose other. You choose another school of spell based around wisdom or charisma. Uh, you could definitely pull it off. Thing is, Taylor, you're not learning this spell from a wizard. I am learning it from a sorcerer. There's absolutely... Yeah, he's not teaching you in a wizardy way. <laughs> I, like, I've not really considered how this works fictionally. How does a sorcerer who uses the magic that is in his blood teach someone who has no magical heritage <laughs> to cast spells? Maybe you do. Maybe he's just helping you awaken your latent potential. Wow. Basically... Did the sorcerer study? Because I'm pretty confident that throwing fireballs comes pretty easily to Nova at this point, and probably towards the beginning. Is he going to be able to teach someone how to do fireballs in the intellectual, like, book way? It's going to be very interesting how this works out. We'll see what level you are when you get out of this potential dungeon. (laughs) We're still, we're like 7,000 XP off the next level. That's quite a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. Five to six is a big jump, isn't it? It is a huge jump. It's why I do milestone leveling. Massively prefer it. Yeah, I think I was thinking about this. This is another great discussion topic. I was thinking about this um, over the last week. I read a couple of articles on it online and so on, and read a bit in the DMG. I can see why milestones are good, and I can see myself wanting to use them. basically as a DM. I would hate to want my players to level up before they can. Like, if you know what I mean, to go. Oh yeah, I yeah. really wish you guys could level up, but you weren't actually that close on experience. But at the same time, giving players experience is quite cool. Although mm-hmm. Taylor will absolutely agree with me that you just forget like 50% of the time, right? Like you have a yeah. good session and the end of the session is everyone goes outside to like get some air or like have a smoke and chat. And at that point you're all being like, oh, wasn't this moment cool? Oh, I wonder what's going to happen with this. Oh, this, oh, this. And you just totally forget XP. Yeah. And then someone messages you yeah. like three days later on Facebook and says, oh, did we get XP for that session? And you're like, yes. Matt is referencing literally a message I sent him on Friday. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You did, so On the one hand, levelling up at thematically appropriate moments is great, because then you feel like you did well in those moments. But equally, as I've discussed on some of the blog posts uh, up on the site, 
I love like numbers and spreadsheets and getting experience points and like hoarding them. <laughs> I really enjoy, especially as if one week you get a bit more and you're like, yes, we did really well this week. I think the issue with that is that you can have some, some groups will have sessions where they don't kill anything or it's very hard from the social encounters they did to reward XP. Yeah. And Milestone lets you go, okay, so you had a bit of a non, non effective week this week in terms of like doing the story, but you got some development. So we're getting, and you can kind of feel it as well with the players in the group. I mean, every, especially yeah. like levels one to five should be quick because level one is dull unless you've never played D&D before. Level one is absolutely mind-numbingly dull. Disagree. It, insofar as what your character can do, not in terms of how dangerous the world is. The world is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and that, I think, is what makes it really fun. Like, the I can actually die to a goblin? Fuck. Or an that actually almost happened to my bard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Lost Minds of Phandalin, first encounter, get ambushed. <laughs> Four goblins come up, both shoot me. I'm like, okay, death saving throws. I haven't done anything yet. I was like, okay. Goblins are mental snipers. Uh, that, because I'd never played D&D before when we started playing. And I was genuinely taken aback by how much damage a goblin could do to you with a bow and how hard they could hit. Yeah, that was scary. We literally had to hole up in a church and hide from the goblins. That was really fun. Yeah, that was rough. Um, just, I just want to return briefly to a point that was made earlier about multiclassing for thematic reasons, which is, I think, another area where Pathfinder and Fifth Ed differ. Because in Pathfinder... I think there's less reason to need to multiclass to create a specific thing because there are just so many classes that there's, if there's a thing you want to do, there's almost certainly a class already there for it, which is mm. quite cool. You know, in our party, the good guys party, we've got Cavalier and Swashbuckler, which are very similar, but subtly different. And there's a class for each thing. And it, it makes it difficult trying to create a character because of all the choices but just the range of choice you have in Pathfinder is fantastic yeah I think what it does is it it's great for most people and I find it incredibly difficult and I imagine Jack would as well because I don't I'm I, I definitely min max and I'm definitely a problem player because I want my character to be really powerful but I don't want that so that I can be better than everyone at the table or that I can kill all the monsters really easily I do it because I find it incredibly frustrating. And Chris, you've played a lot of board games with me, so you know this is like how how frustrated I get when I feel like I've basically screwed something up that I could have done better. And So for example, if I get my feats wrong with Torm and Fang, what I could actually end up doing is spending like two months with my character being worse than it could have been. And every time I roll those dice, I'll be like, oh, right, this is really tiresome because of this and this and this. And so what happens is like that. that's why I feel like I want the things to be done right. Because mm. there is a right way of doing it, and it's fun to try and find, and then it's fun to do, and then it's fun to execute. For example, if I created a character, and then I found out that they didn't do what I thought they did, that would just be so... And, and you, Chris, had a similar experience with Gurney. You're like, oh, I've got this character concept, these are the things I want to do. And then, once you got into the fights, you're like, actually, I keep getting hit, so that's lame, because I wasn't expecting to be the tank. And I actually don't have the abilities on my weapons, because of the reach of all my enemies. And I don't do as much damage in this way and I don't have as many options in this way. And it's like, wow, actually, this just sucks because I'm not playing the same game as everyone else. Like, if you see, like, Taylor with his cleric and he's like, banish you, heal you, just got hit. Oh, that was only a 20. Doesn't hit. You're like, wow, that looks really fun because his character's actually just hitting the brief. Yeah, no. Very true. Sorry. So, Matt, I think one thing you're doing here is conflating two slightly different issues because... 
I agree with you. It totally sucks to make a character and then it not fit what you wanted for it at all. Like, mm. that is shit and you should just be able to change because, yeah, that's not fun. But taking, like, one wrong feat isn't that big a deal. Like, one feat isn't going to make or break you, for sure. Especially in Pathfinder where you get them every other level. Plus bonus feats. And also, like, you talked about having this, like, oh, no, I'm just missing and everything. And, like, for two months my character's going to be a bit shit. But would is that actually, like, in a vacuum, by the rules, sure, that's what could happen. But is that actually what would happen? Because you, like, to start with, you gave Fang some bad tricks. And you're like, hey, can can I change them? These are bad. And I said yes. And if you did the same with a feat, I would also let you just switch the feat out if you thought you'd picked up a useless feat. Yeah, and indeed, you already have done with Tom. But... Oh, yeah, I did. I forgot <laughs> so, about that. <laughs> so, yeah, totally fair. I think it's it's just a... With character creation, to put a slightly different spin on it, because you're right... What it is, is when you're creating your character, that should just be, like, a, an awesome experience, right? And it largely is. Ca- creating characters is, like, so fun. I love doing it. I love, like, reading, like, three guides and then, like, reading, like, two different books to, like, look at all of the, like, options and then picking them and stuff and so on. The The issue comes when you haven't done it right and then you sort of feel like, as a player, you've lost. You had this fork of, like, what option to pick and you picked the wrong one and then you've lost and that's quite sad. So I think... Actually, this is a great way to like move it into uh, DM discussion, as you did, Taylor, and I sort of went back. Should you let your players change things, and how much should you let them change them? Absolutely, you should let them change them, and personally, I'm just really lenient on it, because I want everyone to have a nice time, and I, I don't think many people would disagree. I frame that in a way that's very hard to disagree with. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I agree. Where I struggle is if you change the character, mm. not what the character can do. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. There can just be a point where you go, ah, oh, this week I was the Wood Elf Ranger, then I'm the Halfling Warlock Fighter, then I'm the half orc Barbarian. Not calling anyone in particular out there. <laughs> it just have to be the classes that came to mind. Um, <laughs> wow. If you do that every single week, just for the continuity of the immersion, that can be tough to maintain. Yeah. But that, right that. and that's why also as well, because I, I had a reputation where like, I th- if something is dangerous, I think it's dangerous, and I don't fudge dice rolls. So if I roll the natural 20... Ta-da, that's what Natural 20 is. Mm. But it got to the point where two player characters would die too often, and you get to the point where the cohesion within the party unit just is non-existent, which is why I'm now more of a that Mercer frame of view, where you know how he has his rule set for if a character dies this ritual, you can perform to bring the character back. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I want to incorporate into my game, because I, d- I think where the party is now, if one of us... Unless, unless the player wants to change character, in which case, fair beans. But that is... <laughs> Now I know Revivify, that's not their decision anymore. <laughs> this is it. So, but, so now it's at the point where you're like, okay, if you want to change character really, we can talk about it. But otherwise, I think you have to give them the option of the resurrection. Like, you've got that connection. So, so would you let a player change their character that they'd been playing for? I'm just going to give you some like questions for the three of you. Would you let your player who'd been playing a barbarian for six levels change to a fighter? Yeah, totally. One, if you look at any like big TV series or film, there's always a point where a character has the moment of revelation, and their path changes, yeah. and how they behave changes. And what the D and D rules that allows you to do with that is you go, okay, the barbarian no longer suits his personality. What he's trying to do, he's going to wear full plate the whole time, and he's going to fight that way for for whatever reason. The character's made that decision. That's how he's going to behave going forward. They'd got to a point in their career where they're like, shit, actually, being angry all the time just isn't the way. Like they've had this huge moment of enlightenment where they're like, I I need to get this under control. How I fight is just 
dangerous. All it is is my fury against the enemy, and that's not, I mean, that's not safe. So suddenly, <laughs> like you say, they start wearing full plate and they actually learn to fight properly. So yeah, you could totally just let them swap out levels for fighter. You know what would be way better than attacking recklessly? Wearing plate armor with a shield. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. And like, it would, like, you can, you can imagine though, you can imagine the scenario where like that comes up, where that moment of character growth happens. Mm. And then, like, it's a very specific one, uh, in, in this case, but it's, it's quite easy to understand, I think. So you have like, the barbarian goes in and triggers off every trap in the dungeon and pulls the whole room, does a full Leroy Jenkins, and one of his friends dies because of it. Like, he aggroes the whole room and someone gets killed because of how he approached the situation. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Just, just, just quick spoilers, Gesh is absolutely not going to have that moment where he realises that being angry all the time is a bad thing. Just in case people were wondering. Yeah, that's that's why I love it though. That's why, and that's why I'm in favour of it is because it creates that character development moment, mm. which is awesome for the person playing the character. It's awesome for the party because they have to react to how someone used to be and what they are now. And it's mm. also it's awesome for the DM because you've given someone that moment of enjoyment and thrill of discovering that actually they lead the story mm. and you facilitate it. Okay, so what if they just said, "I really like my character. I'm just not enjoying being a barbarian. Can I be a fighter? What then?" depends how deep you are into it at that point like if you say if you said that to me session two absolutely why not they're like i really like my character i really like everything he does like largely like i like his personality his backstory but i'm not having fun with a barbarian can he be a fighter i'd make them find an in-character reason for that to happen yeah it, yeah that's so that, at that point it's for dm's responsibility to help the player find that so discovery. you'd make them so you'd make them change their characterization so that they could change their mechanics no i think you could you have to go to the player okay what would be the reason why what can we find that helps for everyone else to understand? Because the player might be like, okay, my barbarian isn't fun, whatever, but the player's character is really cool, I want to be a fighter. We go, okay, but everyone else in the party sees you as a barbarian. So how do we make sure you and everyone else see that transition into the fighter? Mm. It, doesn't, it won't necessarily be seamless. It won't necessarily, and, and it's still the DM's job to, to find a way of doing that. But I, feel, I still feel like it's a responsibility to engage the player from that, from that perspective, that it's a story-led game. Mm. And that because of that, you have to, there still has to be some sort of story. It's different with Adventure League, and it's why Adventure League lets you up to level five at any point. You go, well, my character keeps all his stuff, but I'm changing his stats around, and I'm going to change even his race and his class. I can just do that. Because Adventure League is designed up until level five for you to do that kind of mass drastic change, and it's because in the early levels of gameplay, you might discover that you're not having as much fun as you thought you would. At level six, unless you've started at a high level, I think you know. Mm. And you've settled by that point. And if you haven't got that connection with the character by level six, oof, like, that's where it gets tricky. But it's why, again, like, with me killing characters off quite regularly, by, by proc, by accident or by intent, or just by letting the rules play out, you get that situation where you might re-roll to another rec character and find it didn't do what you thought it would do. Mm. Then it's definitely on, then the onus is definitely on the DM to work with you to kind of like, how do we get this where you want to be? Mm. For sure. Yeah. I think the other thing, um, about, um, like finding an in-game reason to do, like, such a dramatic change, it doesn't have to be a massive change in the character. Like, I know the example I gave before was a big, like, character revelation moment, but it could equally be, like, just you go and find a way to justify how your character is changing mechanically. Like, your barbarian has never worn armor in his life before. He's gonna have to go somewhere, have it fitted, have someone teach him how to use it properly also he's using a shield that's new maybe he has to go and do some training with the city watch to pick up those skills and like you could just have a whole training montage and then in the course of like half an hour you've got your character from 
one place, you've changed his mechanics without changing the actual character, and you've got what you want. And it still makes sense. That in-character journey of, rather than just going, okay, snap fingers, now he's a fighter and he's doing what I want. That in-character journey to take them from barbarian to fighter, I think keeps the immersion and investment in the character. Because then Mm. they're not just a collection of skills and stats which weren't working the way you wanted. They're actually something, a thing of their own that needs shaping and directing, you know, to be that thing. Would you would you let them map as a DM? Probably, yeah. Barbarian to fight is a really easy one. Yeah. Because if my player wanted to change from barbarian to fighter but didn't want to put on plate armor, I'd largely just let them do that immediately. Like the difference between you attacking with a with reckless attack or using some battlemaster maneuvers is much of a muchness. Which is why I thought that one was a good example. Other things would be a bit trickier. I think the thing is, and I feel very strongly about this, is that players have a duty to one another at the table for their characters to be consistent Mm. and i think that it's okay for you to want to change however that should be thought about very carefully so for example i don't feel bad changing in jack's game when we're just coming off the back of a lot of mortality Mm. and we're finding our feet again Uh, however i wouldn't dream of asking to change agnes Mm. even if i wasn't enjoying her because she's such a major part of the story and other people's characters that's the key thing, is that your character is a part of other people's characters, and yeah. if you change it, then you stop that. And so, for example, I would feel very strongly, both as a DM and as a player, if a character was very stupid and had been roleplayed very stupidly, and then it came to the like climactic pitched battle period or something, or like a riddle or deciphering an ancient tome, right? And the player suddenly started roleplaying them as a genius, I'd be like, you're kind of ruining the game here. Other people's characters, the, mm. the what they see the world as and how their part interacts and who does what hinges on those things. Like, the thing about the game, right, is the world, the story, the enemies, the cities, the towns, the roads, the forests, they change every session, right? Yeah. To a degree. There are new things happening. The things that stay the same are the characters. And if those characters aren't consistent, it's like, even thinking about it makes me annoyed. Like, for example, if in Jack's game on Wednesday... Tali started acting totally differently, Taylor. Mm. I'd be like, uh, well, that line of dialogue I just delivered, I thought was going to have these effects, and I thought that would be cool, and now it's like totally different, because like, to put a really high-end example on it, let's say when we go to sleep the first night in the Temple of the Allfather, I have the Allfather, Tali is on watch, knocks everyone out who might wake up, and steals all our stuff. It's like, <laughs> well, mm. that's lame. Like, yeah. And it's not just lame because we don't have any stuff. It's lame because you weren't actually playing the game properly. Like, And I know you can't tell people how to roleplay their characters, but at the same time, they should do it right because they should want to do it right and they should feel obliged to do it right. Yeah, I think what it seems to be... What you seem to be saying, Matt, is in terms of changing characters, the important thing for you is the continuation of kind of the essence of the character. Is that is that right? So, like, Fighter to Barbarian, it's still someone attacking in some way, the characters say the same, but from cleric to dirty thief is too much of a jump. There has to be a, deci- a reason for the decision the character's made. If, if we use Tali as the example, this cleric of Valka, really holy, you know, will say, will carry out prayers and well wishes for people who have died on the roadside, which she's come across. If she suddenly gets up in the middle of the night and starts knocking everyone out and stealing all their stuff, mm. it is my job as DM to deus ex machina the hell out of this. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I, I, and I have to absolutely. Well, first thing I'll do is I'll look Taylor in the eye, the character, the person playing Tali, and be like, and just raise an eyebrow. <laughs> just look at them and be like, "Are you being a knob? Do you think you're being a knob? Because if you are, stop being a knob." <laughs> no, I'll just do it subtly. I'll let Tali continue. Like, okay. I wouldn't do that subtly. No, no I know sir. you wouldn't. But when, but when that's when, that's when suddenly Tali's walking away, she's, you know, whistling down the streets, and oh, I've one of my mates. Oh look, the city guard are all werewolves. This will be fun. Like, oh dear. It's something like a no-win scenario. Oh no, that's why you gave me the silver warhammer so I can rob everyone and kill the werewolf city guards. (laughs) That's a bad. It's a bad example. That's that's been so well incentivized now. I know what I'm doing on Wednesday. Just yeah, just for next week. This is this is Taylor's last session uh, in Total Party Podcast before we kick him the fuck out for robbing all our stuff. So enjoy him while he lasts. I think because we've we keep making allusions to Jack's game and you know. Taylor's character there, stealing all our stuff. And we keep talking about the Temple of the Allfather, but why are we doing that? Because we hadn't got there. Shall we Shall we discuss Jack's game a bit and see why we keep mentioning that? When last we left our heroes. Everyone's in Luskan, having left Port Lass and the Frost Giants behind. They've come to Luskan. All the Frost Giants that were assaulting Luskan were obliterated by the Brotherhood of the Arcane. And the players had a little bit of downtime as the characters bought some stuff, sold some stuff. The centre point of all this, really, was to one, bring Gesh and Daxon, and two, to let Tali spend 1,500 gold pieces, or 2,000 gold pieces. It was 2,000. I upped the price, price, She's a massive Goliath. One, she's a massive Goliath, and two, because you're in Luskan, and they're going to rip you off to shreds for this. Yeah. But he bought Tali plate mail, and she is now very happy. We got that done, and then we thought, right, let's let's get to the meat of this journey. You've, you're with Harshnag for a reason. He wants to go to the Eye of the Father. He wants you to come with him. And the party left Luskan towards Mirabar, and then off into the Valley of Karun and the Spine of the World to find the Eye of the Father. And I think it moved along quite quickly. I don't necessarily like making players roll every single day. Like, what did you do every single day? Because I think that's just null and boring. Hmm. So there was a bit of a slight bit of fast travel to Mirabar, and I gave the player as you approached. I gave you the party the option: Do you want to go into Mirabar? And there was a resounding, not particularly. We'll skirt around if we can. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well we won't do any really heavy role play here, um, except for Barnabas the Bard, who's a harper, encountered another harper that told him about some teleportation circles that they might be useful later on. That was so shady. So the ca- our party was just walking along, and this. Oh, was it a dwarf? Yes. Yeah, this dwarf from, like, next to a stables just goes, like, psst, psst, and, like, calls our harper over. And as a reasonably observant party, at least one of us notices that we're down a man. Uh, and he's and then he comes back, and he's like, oh, I was just talking to that guy about the stables and trying to get horses. And obviously, because our players being at the table had heard the entire conversation, we knew it was about the harpers. But the character's just like, oh, horses, excellent idea. Can you get... And there was a good <laughs> quarter of an hour as we just bombarded the, the poor pair of them with, like, detailed questions about what mounts we could get and... Whether or not I could get Joy some winter barding. That was... That is... I think that is one of my favourite little windows of role-playing was that conversation. So I just want to interject here because this is, like, last session, uh, we had the moment on the road with the knight 
and this session we had Shady Halfling, man. And these are the two moments that have actually, like... Because, right, I was struggling a little bit with Tali because she is a good character. She is lovely. She is caring. She is kind and protective. And basically everything that I am not. <laughs> so I was... I've been really struggling to get a handle on how to play her character without being, like, super capricious and occasionally just a bit amoral. But as soon as we noticed that this halfling was basically trying to drag off our our bard into a shady corner and do something with him, I was like, right, no. Walked over, put my fire giant size shield down in front of the halfling. I was like, no, you will not take him. You leave him alone. He is my special little boy. Everyone else in the team thought that the dwarf wanted some, like, alone adult time with him. And if he did, we'd get horses. And everyone else was fine with that. Tali was not. We are not prostituting Barnabas for horses. That is a bridge too far, and I will not stand for it. I think we'd. I think we'd have done it not even for horses, plural. I think we'd have done it for one. <laughs> you bastards. Yeah. So yeah, I finally worked out Tali as the protector and apparently moral compass for the pie. Going back to Tali as a protector, I was completely remiss of me uh, as the host. You, we talked about you getting play, and I didn't ask you how that made you feel because for most plate capable classes that's a big milestone how do you feel now that you've got plate so when me getting plate was like for one thing a massive goal and super important to my character and i think jack did it beautifully because it was a good five minutes of going in and just regarding this beautifully made plate like super personalized so it's got the symbol of my god on one pauldron and the symbol of the order of the gauntlet on the other pauldron and I'm just stood there in front of the mirror with this, um, with the lady who's made it for me, just being like, oh, I can't, this is so special. This is the most special moment. I have never felt like a prettier warrior princess. And then she takes me into the back and is like, thank you for your service in the gauntlet. Here's, here's a shiny new hammer. It was lovely. It was the loveliest thing. It was, it was a great moment. I did enjoy that very much. Yeah, you were like OC tearing up. It was great. Yeah. It was very sweet. I definitely felt like it had to be important. It has to be really... You can't just go into something and go, I want some plate mail, please. 1,500 gold. Okay. Done. Yeah, it doesn't work like that at all. It has to feel... It's like If you're just buying a random hammer, cool, that makes sense. You need a war hammer, I'll have a good war hammer. Easy. Done. Plate mail is so important to heavy armor characters. Um, and, and I liked... Because obviously, even though you're in Luskin in this really shady port city... I like that you, you know, you rolled to see which blacksmith you would go to and you found the good blacksmith in Luskin. And that through the conversation, you managed to get her to make you this artisan level plate armor. It's still plate. There's no like magical properties to it, but it just in terms of how the character looks and having, and describing that out to you, mm. you just get this much clearer picture in your head of what Tarly looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. As well as the cool character moment. And, I, and the hammer for me was like, I've overcharged him for the armor and you rolled and you behaved with her and her two dwarf apprentices. Mm. So I was like, okay, as you as you behaved and you've done, you know, here you go. And you've and also she's heard about you worshiping in Valkyr's temple, where there is temple of Valkyr in the city, and she happens to worship Valkyr. So you've mm. d- you've done everything you could do for that little bit of extra. And here is the silver warhammer, like bonus yeah. prize. So that was really cool for me. That, that and I try I tried it a little bit with Barnabas and the dwarf, but <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think Harry kind of plays Barnabas the bard. Kind of got the whole Harper's or Secret Society thing. And look, this guy that this dwarf is great. Hey mate, hey mate, you want to come over here? I want something to show you. I don't, maybe it's just like players a, playing a spy. 
Harry was very, very <laughs> sceptical. Even after, right at the start, his question was, how likely is it that this guy's, like, actually not a Harper? He's just, like, infiltrated. And Jack said, they've basically never been infiltrated ever. And Harry was still a bit sceptical. <laughs> I, I wonder if I've just got the reputation where Harry just doesn't trust any NPC I introduce Mistrusting him to. Mistrusting Jack is very reasonable. <laughs> I'd never have one of my characters go with you, with a dark stranger NPC of yours. <laughs> Definitely getting murdered. Unsurprisingly, getting Harry and, the, and Barnabas to Bar to engage with this dwarf was more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Especially because I was like, ah, you guys might need circles of teleportation at some point. Here's the thing. And it's in the book. This isn't just me going, ah, give the guys teleportation circles. It's in the book, but it's a thing. And it opens up, like, six new areas and cities you can go to for adventure, which I thought would be quite cool as well. But no, everyone onwards to the Temple of the Ivy Allfather. Oh yeah, you got some winter clothing as well. Because Harshnag had, had remembered to remind you that you might need some, because otherwise you're going to freeze to death in the Valley of Karun. There was a beautiful moment where we realised that we'd sold all the furs that we could have just <laughs> used for winter clothing. <laughs> Oh dear. My plate armour is more important than your winter clothing. I don't even understand what winter clothing is or why you need it, you <laughs> silly, weak little people. Goliaths <laughs> are the best. <laughs> that was the best bit, was the absolute, like, Tully's this absolutely, like, great person. But the t- Taylor the player's like, yeah, I'm a Goliath and. <laughs> <laughs> Tali is very concerned about your welfare. Taylor doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, um, so when you left Mirabar, eventually Barnabas was given and shown the turf of teleportation with like a plan of all six circles and like just come back later. Like just just come back and we'll go through it. And Barnabas like, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. I just walked out. <laughs> onwards onwards to the Eye of the Allfather and the Valley of Karun. And as soon as you enter the valley, I'm like, well, this is definitely a dangerous area. This is a it will take you two days for half an hour to remember where it, where he is and how he has to get there. So each of those two days is a, what's the marching order? Who's, who's on watch at night? Really serious, like random encounter table is ready to handle this. And sure enough, the very first roll was triggered a random encounter. And you got some stone giants, which you hadn't met yet. Um, that was fun because the battle map, to speak, was about as wide as Harshnag in terms of the width of the canyon you were walking through. Yeah. And the idea was the stone giants were all up above you on either side. And they engaged with Harshnag and Harshnag failed to convince them to leave you guys alone. And then Tali, who speaks giant because she's a Goliath. Yep. And Brady, who speaks giant because he's a giant hunter and he's a dwarf and he just happens to know these things. We're both like, eh, come on then. There's a short round wherever, and you had to fight some stone giants. Yeah, we did. Stone giants are, are famous among giants for being the best rock throwers. And I thought, right, okay, so here we'll do. Have one jump down and fight Harshnag. You've got one on either side of the canyon throwing rocks at you, and then there'd be another one to jump behind to engage with small folk. And at the start of the fight, Dax was on Harshnag's shoulder because as they were scouting through. <laughs> And the giant was, the stone giant just jumps down and tries to wall up Dax. And I just love the idea of his halfling what fighter just jumping around the half leg shoulders going, Yeah, what you doing? No! <laughs> get up, get, fuck get off! Fuck, fuck off! <laughs> Fucking cheese it! But, uh, and just, so I just, he's scarfing over half leg shoulders as half leg swinging his great axe into the stone giant's club. Oh, no, that was a great visual. Mm. Yeah, it was, it wasn't a deadly encounter, but it was definitely interesting with the limited amount of space you guys had to work with. Mm. And I found, I finally managed to pull off the whole, the giant picks you up and uses you as a rock shenanigan, which was great. <laughs> Just picking up, picking up Barnabas. I think it was because finally they managed to get into reach of a, a guy that wasn't a strength based class. And we're like, right, that's it then. <laughs> Let's lob you. <laughs> and Barnabas the Bard was just lobbed halfway across the map. That was good. Straight. 
yeah. Poor Barney buddy. Yeah. But the highlight for me, I mean, you know, wailing away, and it gets to Gesh's turn. Gesh, a dragonborn barbarian. And I knew Felhanded was good. I didn't realise there wasn't a size limit on the whole if both attacks hit thing. <laughs> Dragon just walks up with his gigantic maul, smashes with kneecap of his stone giant. He just went he just falls down like a sack of shit. It was fantastic. It just fell over. And oh, I, was, I was like, okay, this is a thing that just happened. It's really cool. But obviously he's huge, right? So even as he's prone, he's still like 15 foot of high cover you can't see over. Yeah. Like, mm. That was really sweet. But man, and then you've got boulders being thrown at you. And you. The party worked through it quite well. I don't think anyone really got close to dying. Hell no, they didn't. I made sure of it. I yeah. didn't do an attack that entire fight. I just ran around and healed, and it might have been the best we've done, I think. So I understand my role as a cleric better now. Yeah, I, think, I, thought, I thought it worked really well. It was like showing you the danger that you're in this area where anything can happen. Mm. And that even Harshnag and his renown... And he's a frost giant, so he was higher in the ordning than the stone giants, and so they should have gotten out of his way sharpish, and they were just like, nah, we fancy this. And they still tried. And he's harsh now, so he was just like, okay. Get round. I'm pretty sure he he, he uh, stole the kills on two of the stone giants as well, by proxy of just... Uh, about was just the best thing. So sto- a basic stone giant has a, has a reaction. If a rock is thrown at a stone giant, they can catch it. Uh, that's a legitimate yeah. thing they have on their profile. And I thought it would be really cool is there's one left, you kill the other two. Is a harsh nagel who's never used a rock in his life, but whilst he's been around you guys, is going to throw one of the boulders back at this guy, who would catch it and throw it back at harsh nagel and, and then run off. But harsh nagel is apparently really good at throwing rocks and is better and better than the stone giant is at catching them. And he just again killed that one as well. I love that giant. He took a lot of damage that that, that particular encounter. Like he's not. I, I definitely. If he died, that would have been yeah. That's the thing that's happening. You'd have to revivify him for sure. But um, oh yeah, I could do that. That's fine. I had a slot open. <laughs> But yeah, it's. Uh, I thought I was just good to use use some resources, but not too many resources, and show you the danger of the valley. And then eventually, you reach the eye of your father, where you found some humanoid footsteps leading into it. <laughs> you had a shouting match in the middle of this like potential avalanche-ridden area. Ah, that that's because there were not just humanoid footprints that we found. We also found some dragon footprints. Yeah, yeah. There's a dragon in there, and then. Dax and I had quite a long and intense conversation. I, I was desperately trying to get through to the party that if the dragons were metallic coloured, so gold, silver, copper, bronze or brass, they were good guys and to not kill them. And if they were basically any other colour, they were fair game. And Dax was just like, no, I'm sure it's the other way around. Or however he says it. <laughs> and I was like, ah, an understandable but unforgivable mistake. And <laughs> No, no, you didn't say understandable. You said common Common but unforgivable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dax was like, also, important note, so my gold dragonborn is actually rose gold because very early on there was a slight <laughs> miscommunication where Jack had just assumed I was a red dragonborn and had described me as such. And then we just later fudged it that actually just in the firelight I looked red because I'm rose gold, which led to Dax massively distrusting me because that meant I had evil dragons somewhere in my heritage. It was great as a D- from a DM's perspective to just sit back for five minutes and just watch this unfold. Massive grin <laughs> on my face. Roll Occasionally rolling some dice behind the DM screen. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed all of the in-character stuff in that session. It was really good. Yeah, and that's where we left it. You're at the, you're at the gates to the Eye of the Allfather and you're wandering up the steps tracking the footprints, both human and dragon alike. Yeah, nice. we will we will inform you next week 
how a massive dragon eats all our party, and we've had to re-roll all our characters. I didn't say the dragon footprints were big, I just said they were dragon footprints. I've mm-hmm. seen you with dragons, Jack. Just let me know which one you want to borrow, Jack. They're all different size categories. <laughs> oh, I'll get in touch. <laughs> okay, so now that we've wrapped up Jack's game, I think this is a good point to just bring in something I've been wanting to talk about this week. So I went into my local game shop this week just for I just love looking at the, the role playing books and I picked up one and it's called Fear Itself and oh good lord there are some dark things in there. Um and it's basically the gist of it is you're just rather than heroes or anything magical, you're just normal people flung into this like dark and horrible world where there are just things in the shadows. And I was just stunned by just the complete variety of different systems there are. Because obviously we talk about Dungeon Dragons, uh, Fifth Ed and Pathfinder, which is essentially Dungeon Dragons as well. But there's just such a huge world of systems out there. Now, I know, Taylor, you've played some Sprawl, but what other systems have people played? So obviously, as I explained when we first started this podcast, I've been doing this shit since I was like 14. So I have, although they're not different systems, they might as well be. I have played the previous two editions of Dungeons and Dragons, 3.5 and 4th Ed. 4th Ed in particular is a completely distinct system that, while widely reviled at the time, like, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, actually, this does have some use in some situations for some kinds of groups. It being, like, based way more on named powers than just, I hit it with my axe, is quite a fun thing. It's a little overcomplicated, somewhere between 5e and Pathfinder, like, somewhere in that middle ground. I would like to revisit 4th Ed at some point, because... I feel like we didn't get like the value out of it at the time because it was so wildly different from 3.5. And now with the benefit of like whatever it is, five, six years of space removed from it, I actually sort of miss it. There's a great video I watched by Matt Colville where he was talking about like other monsters in fourth edition and how a dragon, how does a dragon breathe fire and it does all the different things. And that's what I would want from it as a DM is I would want to engage with like, the monster design aspects of it because it's that's easy to incorporate. And I think the monster manual is great. Follows is great. Um, even the monsters in like um, Yawning Portal and Out of the Abyss are great, but that little bit extra, like, and I do it all the time with like little unique things a dragon can do. Mm. That's what I would want to take from it. But I never played it. But I just, that, I love that kind of research into different systems. We should try it. Maybe, maybe, maybe after uh, we finish up my campaign, we'd run a fourth head version instead. Yeah, I've got all the core books. What what's what completely different systems have people played? Like my vague point is like fourth head at least. I would count it as a different system. Like, it's not even D&D, basically. It's still Dungeons & Dragons, but basically every fantasy RPG is, in some respect, Dungeons & Dragons, right? Because it's a fantasy universe. Mm. So it's more... It's the system of the mechanics is what you're discussing, really, is what's different. And so less reliance on advantage and disadvantage which is the kind of the big the key mechanic from 5e for me is the advantage disadvantage stuff mm, yeah. so I think you know I, I've never I've played a paper RPG before 5e but like I played Baldur's Gates which was advanced D&D rule set you know tweaked oh, around slightly yeah. yeah and obviously I'm so glad I had a computer working out all that stuff dice rolls for me and not having to do it myself <laughs> Oh, Thacko. I'm eagerly awaiting Starfinder. And I think it's because it's, it's that yeah. very different setting, because it's in space. Mm. And I loved how Taylor described it to me as it's going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, the RPG. And I was, at that point, I was just like, 
I'm in. Yeah, that's when it really, like, sitting down to watch Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was when Starfinder just clicked for me. I'm like, oh, this is what it, this is what it looks like. This is what that game looks like. Yeah, I want to play so bad. Good. The issue that I have with sci-fi RPGs, right, it's similar to the what to what you had with Sprawl Taylor, where getting the tech level and stuff right is so hard because it's so hard to actually like we to scale that my point back. We all know what a fantasy land looks like, like what a tavern looks like, what a town looks like, how mm. people behave. But in sci-fi, that's so much harder, and it's very easy to, at a quick moment like that in a session let someone use their keypad to hack through a door lock like a fancy technological lock and then five sessions down the line be like actually that really set a tone of what you can do how do i deal with this now so i think if i ever ran something sci-fi i'd be running i'd want to just run star wars because everyone knows mm. the star wars like sort of mythos and star wars is actually just fantasy land in space mm. yeah yeah it's it's science fantasy rather than science fiction which i would i would say that's probably where guardians of the galaxy falls as well um as, as opposed to like yeah. your star treks and your Battlestar galactus and things which are like pretty hard sci-fi i think for an rpg you basically have to have swords in some way because Everyone just shooting guns gets really dull. D&D was actually the last kind of system I came to. I played Mutants and Masterminds, Savage Worlds, Several Worlds of Darkness, Star Wars, Shadowrun. Shadowrun, for example, like, you can have an entire party without any sort. Like, we had a troll with an axe, but that's just because he happened (laughs) to want it. Like, he could just have easily had a non-hitty weapon. If the rule set is good, you can still have lots of interesting and different things someone can do that aren't just shooting a gun because likewise i count you could say oh well you know you need other stuff because otherwise people are just hitting stuff with a sword i think there's a real lot of possibility of different things that can be in the rule set and what you can do and it still be interesting Mm -hmm. i think matt has a really good point though especially about wanting to do like a star wars one i think it's not so much specifically star wars although that would be really good for people who have less experience of other sci-fi stuff because like uh, star wars is a touchstone for just literally everyone everyone knows what that looks like Mm. at this point the thing is when you're jumping into something like doing a whole new system in a whole new setting rather than just having that whole homebrew mentality of like right i'm gonna make the world i sort of understand it it'll be fine like going to a product with that kind of inbuilt setting with the mythos already there with all the descriptions and the parallels you can already draw from it is just really strong and a massive help true a lot of a lot of systems do come with like suggested settings and so on yeah but like you don't know what they look like as much as you know like you don't know what greyhawk looks like more than you know what the world of the lord of the rings looks like right mm-hmm. And that that's true of everyone. And Greyhawk was the default setting in 3.5. Even, I would argue, you, you probably don't have as clear a picture of Faerun as you do, again, of Lord of the Rings. Absolutely not, of, no. Uh, no I, Arthurian Christ Britain. knows where Baldur's Gate is. Not a clue. Yeah, I know it's I, big and important. No idea where it is. I really, really struggle with Faerun for that exact reason. Like, it's really challenging not knowing where everything is. And not having like points of reference and stuff, I really struggled. That's part of the reason I made my own campaign world because I knew that my players wouldn't know where things were in Faerun, and so it's yeah. like I can't actually, ju- I just can't run that. There's there's too much there for me to, you have to know to the DM and for them to know. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like if you gave them a map of, fa- of like the Sword Coast and you only ran in the Sword Coast, it would help, or is it because they don't even know what Neverwinter is or Warsteep is? Or that's yeah. really yeah, the crux dude, of it. I've- I've got the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. I've got the map of the Sword Coast. It doesn't help that much. 
And, like, I know these places in a vacuum. Like, I know Baldur's Gate from Baldur's Gate. I know Neverwinter from Neverwinter Nights. I know Icewind Dale from Icewind Dale. I don't understand how they geographically relate to each other in any real way. I think is, like, the main problem. And especially especially when we're travelling around a lot, I'm like, mm. how far are we from this? I just, I don't know where we are. Excellent point. The couple of points that have been made is, first of all, sci-fi settings are hard because they can be so varied, whereas everyone understands what a fantasy setting looks like. And the other point that's been made is that in a world, it can be quite difficult not being familiar with the architecture of the world, how far things away are from each other, just as a small example. But this is this is the beauty of all these vast, you know, vast number of systems. There's a lot of systems. So the one I picked up recently, Fear Itself, World of Darkness, uh, where actually they can be, they're kind of overlays onto the modern world. So, in fact, Matt was in a game I ran a couple of years ago, briefly. The game's called Mage, and it's one of several World of Darkness rule systems, where basically it's the real world, except there is magic, and also everything's just a bit more awful and terrible. And in this setting, you play wizards who have, rather than specific spells, they have varying levels of control over different domains. So a life wizard at low level might be able to influence small animals and so on at higher levels to improve their body. A forces wizard at high levels might be able to summon lightning at low levels, turn the lights on and off. And that's just in the real world. Uh, so I literally, I just ran it in Nottingham because all my players were from Nottingham. They knew where everything was. It was very easy as a shortcut because I could literally just describe a place that I knew everyone had been to. Yeah, the setting it somewhere that you know well is is really good. And the thing you've got to bear in mind is you're discussing it from a DM point of view, but obviously it affects the players as well. If they have to learn a new set of rules and a new place and aren't familiar, then they're going to struggle to immerse. And every Mm -hmm. time you need to make a role-playing decision, you're not quite sure about it and so on. And players come with various preconceptions of things and the worst thing that can happen for them is that they're shown to be wrong so for example it's why when you create your own world you need to be a bit wary of what your players are going to think about the classes so for example if you put halflings they need to be a bit like halflings in other things right like don't give them like random characteristics that people don't associate with halflings because it's just going to ruin people's immersion and they're going to struggle and they're going to get things wrong and that feels really shitty as a player like not knowing, being ignorant of something and then getting something wrong, which you, especially when you thought you knew it beforehand. It depends on the atmosphere around the table. I think one one thing I would absolutely agree with is if you're running a, a system that everyone's new to, the the DM has to be absolutely on top of the rules because if there's any sort of like when I because I ran a D and D one shot not too long ago. I wasn't super up on the rules, but I knew that if I had a question, I could just turn to any of the three DMs at the table and go, oh, how does this work? So either you've got to be willing to do a lot of fudging, which when Matt was in my mage game, I did all the time, or the, yeah, the DM really has to know the rules super well so that if at any point the players are unsure, they can guide them through. But and like I said, I, I take on board all the concerns, but I like having actually played in, I've played in more non-fantasy and non-D&D settings, campaigns and games than I have traditional D&D and fantasy ones. And it's it's never really been something, a problem I've come across. I think initially, there's always a session or so while people get used to everything. But then people just, they get into their characters and it just kind of starts fitting together. I just, 
I love the variety of different because I, I like D and D, but the, just the right the variety of different ways rules work. For example, so I played it was another fancy one called Rain, where instead of rolling a D twenty with a modifier, you have levels in a skill and you roll that many D tens, and then you succeed on things by getting matches D tens that roll the same number. Really interesting. Yeah, but then again, I'm I'm sad like spreadsheets, and so learning different rule sets is great. No, that's totally fair. Like, it is fun. It is nice to do something different occasionally. I was going to say, the other thing is, even if you don't decide to pick up a different rule set or setting, anyone, go to a local game shop, have a look around. Anyone in Nottingham or Beeston, go to Chimera, have a look at their books. The book I picked up, Fear Itself. I'm probably never going to run that setting. But just the the way it approaches things and the ideas and the different take on stuff it has, just for informing other games. So like if I run another D and D game, I will absolutely plagiarise things from that book. There's just loads like getting ideas from other settings and rule sets I think is just really cool. So I think that rules are largely arbitrary in terms of what they do and how they work. So I've played L five R the RPG, which is a very good RPG. Um, it's really deadly. The two sort of axes that the rules work on, in my understanding, after sort of six sessions or so, was that you don't get that much better at hitting someone with a sword. Because the way the, the rule system works is it's an it's a roll X, keep Y. And for damage rolls, you're, you struggle to get above keeping two dice. Because no matter how strong you are, hitting someone with a sword does about the same amount of damage. Like if it's a katana. And so that's cool. As exploding dice, though, so you can do like loads of extra damage, or, like extra special things. And so yeah, you can't get much better at things, and it's really deadly. Like if you hit a human with a sword, they take loads of damage, and that's a big problem. And then they get worse at things because they're bleeding. So that was cool. Um, and so there were bits in the rules that I thought were quite cool, but largely they were just some rules for my character. Like I, I notice if the rules are good or if the rules are bad in terms of like how easy they are as a player, because you want there to be some complexity. To- complexity because you need to be able to do a variety of things and it can't just be too freeform because then you need some rules to work within otherwise you don't know what you can do but for me it's all about setting and how well the setting is handled okay so i think at least in some systems like the rules really can inform the setting as well like you use something like D to run a game that's just like modern day weapons like bullet weapons like that doesn't work because like a beretta does not do 2d6 damage it if it hits you in the head you are dead the rules for armor class and hit points and stuff that work really well for fantasy and magic and swords do not work for say normal people shooting guns at each other the whole thing is just gonna be shit hide from the guns hide from the guns hide from the guns maybe get a shot off A lot of the time, I think the only reason to use different rule systems is if you're going for a completely different setting and it sort of requires just different mechanics because you can't do everything with one set of rules, I don't think. Okay, I think we've had some some good discussion on the other systems and in later weeks, in the interim time, we will run a battery of different gaming systems for our DMs and regulars, and at a later point we'll come back and see how people's opinions on it have changed having played them. For now, though, I want to find out what's been going on with Matt's game, because I've heard some snippets, but not any detail, I'm quite excited. So, in my session, my players had, if you listeners remember, which I'm sure you do, they just brutally murdered a combatant in the arena. That had been Jess, our ranger. 
Jacob, uh, playing Sadak Deep for the Dwarf, had recently done poorly in the arena but become a sort of hero of the city and very popular. Uh, and then everyone had left the arena to sort of a combination of going into hiding and celebrating. Fadak went back to the dwarves and by next morning he had a terrific hangover. Uh, his name had been painted on the inside of Stone Shapers Hall where all the dwarves live uh, in like huge white lettering and had also been graffitied around the town as well when people wandered around. Like he was he was big news. And then Nikaran, Taylor's character, and Monkey had met up and then they'd gone. I asked them where they were going to go for the night and they said the Corpse and Widower, which is like the sleazy tavern. And I thought, okay, brilliant. They're going somewhere scummy so they can go into hiding. That's brilliant and cool. And I was like, so what do you guys do all night? And they said, we just drink all night. And I was like, right, okay, that's very bold when you have gone here because you are worried about repercussions, but that's okay. So they got attacked in the night. But they're ballers, so they killed a couple and then the other two escaped. And then they thought, actually, the city's not very safe. Let's go find Thadak. This is really early, like four in the morning. They get to Thadak. They wake Thadak up. They've met Nova the Sorcerer and Erica the Bard on the way there, who are also going to find Thadak in the morning. And Thadak is hungover. So the party have a bit of chat, 60% of them hungover, and they're role-playing being hungover. And it's hilarious. Like when the sober people are like raising their voices, the hungover people are covering their ears, and all the hungover people decide they're just going to sleep through the day. They give all of the party money to Nova and Erica, who are not hungover, to go and get some healing potions and some herbs and spices to resurrect the dead wolf. So they sleep, and I speak to Nathan. Uh, who's playing Nova the Sorcerer, and I was like, right, what do you want to buy? He's like, these things, basically. I was like, right, you've got enough money for two, to, for three healing potions and the herbs. Do you want anything else, or do you want to do anything else? He's like, no, that's fine, we'll go and get those. I was like, right, cool, you do that, that's fine, that's done. Then they all meet up again together, and they leave the city, which Jacob is upset about. Not like pissy, but just notices, because he's got another two and a half weeks, or two weeks of plate that he needs to find. Two and a half weeks. Yeah, it takes oh. three weeks to make plate. Yeah, I think I think a week is too little. Like you have to have full measurement. It all has to be made. I did a bunch of research on how long plate takes to make, and like the fastest a suit of plate was ever made was for like the King of England or the King of France when his plate was lost when campaigning, and it took like all the smiths a week just doing it to get the king's plate. That back. is a very cool fact. Hmm. Yeah, it's actually really hard to find out how much it, how long it t- took to make different armors because they the information is just not really out there and like the combination of like modern tools and old tools and stuff like how mm. do you actually recreate it mm. so they set off out of the city and they know they're going back to the place where they saw the big dark shadow on like the huge step in this like canyon over the river and the players are like yeah cool how do we get there and i was like well you should really remember but it's just as all of your directions have been so far just follow the river so they follow the river and we need to find a way to get Monkey, Jess's Ranger's character's animal companion, Griff, back. Because the revised Ranger rules are a bit funny and skewy. So, obviously, the Beastmaster needs their animal companion to always be up. Like, you can't just kill them off, because then it'd be like suddenly saying to your fighter, oh, you got knocked out, you don't get to use manoeuvres anymore. It's like, what? <laughs> so, what it says is they can spend eight hours, or it takes eight hours, and 25 golds worth of rare herbs and nonsense to... To call your companion spirit back. And my world's quite low madge. So it's quite hard for me to justify the range just like setting some time on fire. And then some more actual time on fire. And then the wolf just wandering up. And so what I did was when they were 
walking back through the forest, I had them stumble across the corpse of a wolf uh, with an arrow in its neck. And they were like, okay, cool. We'll investigate the wolf. Or something. And I was like, well, its stomach looks a bit sort of flabby, but not firm. And they're like, all oh, right, that's weird. And they're like, we'll cut it open. I was like, fucking hell, that's bold. I was expecting you to sort of infer what was going on, but that's fine. And they're like, I'm like, there's nothing in it, but it's clearly what's pregnant. And they're like, oh, whoa, cool. And then I was like, you look around and Jess, the ranger, finds tracks. And she just like she's off like a shot following these tracks back, crosses a river, goes upstream and finds like a little Warren burrow thing that has uh, one dead wolf cub in it. One wolf cub that's just grey and normal coloured female and then one totally white wolf cub that she knows instinctively when she looks into its eyes is Griff. So it's very Game of Thrones, right? And I appreciate that, but it's not very easy to be not derivative with your wolves. So she picks up the one that's got that is Griff and like bounds back to the party. Jess is beaming, she's really happy with this because it's like a great bit of characterization. She's got a wolf back, she's super happy. And she shows the party and everyone's like, Oh wow, that's quite cool. They're like, Were there any other wolves? And Jess, out of character, is like, Oh yeah, shit, there's that other wolf. Uh, I guess I'll go back and get that one as well. So she goes back and gets the other wolf, comes back and then straps the wolf the wolf cubs to her and carries them for a bit. I like that in your setting, companions appear to be like hydras, that if one dies, you get two. <laughs> so we're getting to that. Like overnight, when they all wake up the next morning, the wolf that is the animal companion, Griff, the white one, has grown to like twice the size of the other cub. And then at the end of the, that adventuring day, they see that it's even bigger. And by the time they get to the dungeon, it's sort of getting to like adolescent size. Like it can start to fight as normal. So I've given the wolf back, it's grown, it's characterised and so on, and it's changed from grey to white. So that's awesome. But the other wolf is still like a baby wolf cub, and it's quite hard to fight with that one. So they get to where they're going, and there's this huge, like, scree stone slope. It's like a 45 degree angle, so it's difficult terrain all the way up. And then it goes up to this huge, steep stone shelf. It's like hundreds of feet tall. And they're like, right, well, we know we need to go to the top of there. We don't know what's up there, so we'll start climbing. So they start climbing up, and at some point they start to hear the sounds of monkeys again, which they heard when they were on the other side of it last time, but largely just ignored. They'd had an evening where Sadak, with his very low wisdom, had been on watch and heard monkeys, and he rolled insight to see if they sounded like they were dangerous and threatening, and rolled something like a one or a two or a three. So I said, you think the monkeys are a threat to the party? So he woke everyone up in the middle of the night, and everyone ended up exhausted because they'd not got a good night's sleep, which is quite funny. So they're wary of monkeys. So they see these four monkeys who start throwing a combination of rocks and shit at them down the hill. (laughs) They kill two of them quite handily and the other two run off. And then the party start chatting. And then thump, 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 thump. Over the top of the ridge, they see this enormous, like, 100 feet foot tall beast. Jesus Christ. It's basically King Kong, right? So they see King Kong. He comes wandering down and the party immediately engage. King Kong throws some rocks and the party... Because they're on this slope, I've had them be, if they're moving up or across the slope, they're on difficult terrain, so they're moving at half speed, which is a huge blow to the melee fighters. And if, But yeah. if they go downhill and they flee, they're going at full movement, so they're fine. What happens is uh, Nova, Nathan's character, starts throwing fireballs, and they've only been level 5 for like two sessions, so they've never done, he's never thrown a fireball before. So the party are like, what? He's a phoenix sorcerer, so he sort of spins around, like twirling his arms, and he's encased in this mantle of flame and then starts hurling fireballs at this beast yeah really cool moment uh thadak because he knows he can't get up the hill quickly enough just 
puts his shield down to create some cover for the rest of the party and just like holds the line while this monkey this gorilla throws huge rocks down uh, one of them hits Nikaran first because he's the closest up the hill from stabbing a monkey. He then retreats a bit. I needed healing, so I went back to the bard. Yeah, so he retreats down the hill to get healed. And then he's like, right, how do I get up the hill with all of my like bonus action dash and my action and action surge? And the party can cock this plan where he's going to dash up the hill to Thadak. Thadak is going to brace his huge tower shield. Nikaran's going to jump onto it and then shove the shield as Nikaran jumps to try and circumvent this difficult terrain. All really cool. They roll acrobatics and athletics and they do well. I'm like, right, you can move D10 squares up the hill as a result. D10 Mm -hmm. squares, so five feet. So somewhere between five and 50 feet. 50 feet would almost have closed, maybe would have closed. So this is great. So Taylor's like, I don't want to roll the dice. I keep rolling ones. Jacob, you roll the dice. So as you can imagine, Jacob rolls the dice and rolls a one. (laughs) It was literally a one. (laughs) I moved one square from my awesome feat of acrobatics. It was was sad. The next turn, so Kong throws another rock. People are starting to take quite a lot of damage. The rocks do a lot of damage. They're basically single target fireballs. So Nikaran uses the rest of his movement that turn to get all the way up to Kong. Or just about all the way up to Kong. On Kong's turn, Kong walks up to Nikaran, punches him knocking him unconscious and then walks past him towards <laughs> the rest of the party like it was really quite a savage moment <laughs> yeah my rogue does not deal well with difficult terrain and it, it was one of those good moments for um for dming because there are some enemies in some combat situations where your enemies should be curb stomping players so for example like if you're fighting a bunch of like assassins and they knock your character unconscious and he's really far away from the rest of the party who are all fighting in one corner of the tavern and he's on his own against two. Those guys are absolutely slitting your character's throat, right? Whereas King Kong, when he's charging down a hill, he's going to lean down, he's going to roar, he's going to lean down with one hand and he's going to swap the rogue, right? And that rogue's going to hit the deck. And King Mm. Kong's not going to stop his run then. He's going to keep running and then he's going to swap the next thing. So I think that's quite cool. This is where one of these forks happened that I talked about. So they burn loads of like fireballs and sorcery points to kill this. And the way it forked was, I'd originally hoped that my party would stealth their way up this hill and to the monster. Because they knew there was a monster there because they'd seen it before and been told about it. But they didn't and that was fine. And so the, the point where it forked was, I was like, right, if they, after this one fight, assume everything's gravy and just basically start chatting and shouting at each other, which is what they tend to do when left to talk about things, then there will be consequences. So they do that and they start shouting about what the plan is and talk about how great they are and how they <laughs> nailed it and so on. At which point, a second enormous ape steps over the ridge and they're back in combat. At which point they're like, that one really hurt. And it's back up the hill again, and it's going to throw rocks again. So the party start cheesing it down the hill. Like, absolutely, like, cheesing it. And the thing is, I'm pretty sure they could have taken it, just about. Like, maybe someone would have died, but it's unlikely. Like, they probably could have made it. But as soon as one person decided they were running, which was, unsurprisingly, Nikaran, <laughs> they definitely couldn't take it anymore. So they've... That move dash bonus action dash that rogues get isn't there for no reason. <laughs> yeah, 90 feet down the hill. <laughs> I was off that map in, like, one turn. Brave, brave Sinikaran. He's not brave. Not at all. I mean, they didn't even... They hadn't even had time to sort of slit the throat of the larger... Of the ape they downed or, like, cut any of its flesh off or anything. So they start cheesing it down the hill. 
had you intended for the apes to be killable? Like, was it an encounter you thought the party could take if they planned properly, or was oh, it yeah, just... Oh, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. There's, like, loads of different, like, things in it. Like, if they stealthed up... We'll get to them stealthing and trying different tacks in a moment. So, Jacob's character has 21 AC currently, which is very high. But he'll, when he gets played, he'll have 22. He was hit with a roll of a 21 in that fight twice. So if he'd had his plate and they'd just waited, he just wouldn't have been hit. And what this means is that eventually he <laughs> goes down about halfway through the fighting retreat because he's at the back and he's taken. he took a bunch of damage from the rocks early on in the first fight. So he goes down. So Thadak has taken the brunt of the damage, apart from that that knocked Nick run out. Everyone else is largely unscathed. I think the bard took one big hit that made everyone quite worried because I was randomising where the rocks were being thrown against which player. So people were moving around and thinking that they had aggro. But unless someone was actually next to Kong and being hit with the fists, they were just getting thrown rocks. So Erica was at the back of the party and got, like, smashed for 30 damage. Thalek goes down and Nova and Nikran are already off the map. They've already fled into the tree line. So the girls have the chance, the choice and the chance to heal Thadak or escape unharmed because they can both get off the map with their full movement. But that will leave Jacob almost certainly to death. So they both difficult to rein it up the hill a little bit to give him some heals and then run. And then like the next boulder hits Monkey, who's not taken any damage. And they all get out, but they have taken a beating, wouldn't you say, Taylor? Yes, an absolute mauling. Yeah, so the party have taken a bunch of damage, and this is the hardest fight they've had so far. Uh, And it was one that I'd expected them, with the information they had, to not just run into head-on. But they did, and that's fine. So in the in-character chat between sessions, they've been discussing what the plan is for the next session, because they know they have to fight maybe that again, or some sort of derivative of that. So yeah, and that's where my session got to. It's a good session when King Kong gets brought in. I described him as a giant ape for the first sort of half of the combat, but after a certain point, I just had to call him Kong because it's just <laughs> so much easier. Didn't I, didn't I try so hard, Taylor? You did. You tried very hard. And then eventually it was Kong, and then the second one was Lady Kong. Well, I am I am excited for next week to hear about how they get absolutely murdered by two giant apes at once thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of total party podcast remember to check out our website for blog posts and so on at totalpartypodcast.com that's podcast with a k as always also if you've got any questions want to hear about something on the show or just want to say hi because you know we're lonely then email us at show at totalpartypodcast.com and until next time keep on rolling bye guys bye 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 bye